You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. Yes, that's right. It's Monday, and that means it is time for us to dive into the world of political systems and what goes on here in the U.S. Hi, everybody. This is Steve. I host the show each week, and I'd like to welcome each and every one of you to my show for this week. Uh, We've got a pretty good amount of stuff to cover this week, so let's jump right in, shall we, as we always do. Let's start off with our rundown of where we are in our battle with COVID-19, the coronavirus. Uh, To date, we have 31.7 million cases in the U.S., and 567,000 people have died from the disease. Uh, And on the upside, uh, news is reporting that uh, nearly half of the American adults have been vaccinated with at least one dose of the vaccine, and that stands us at 208.5 million uh, vaccinations administered uh, to date. So we continue to make the good progress. We continue to get vaccines and more arms, and uh, that's a good thing. There's been some news on the uh, vaccine front um, over the last uh, week to 10 days. Uh, as you may have heard, the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine was paused in its distribution uh, last week due to some reports of a few cases of patients who developed uh, blood clots and some other symptoms as a result of receiving the vaccine. Now, the the decision to pause the administration of the J&J vaccine was made purely out of uh, caution, and uh, I think it was a very good move to take. Uh, there were some anomalies that popped up in terms of uh, people who we're seeing uh, blood clots form as a result of receiving the vaccine. But, you know, the, the uh, CDC and the scientists were quick to point out, as Dr. Fauci mentioned in several uh, appearances on news media over the course of the week, that the uh, six or seven or so people who got blood clots as a result of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine represent a a fraction of one in a million of the number of doses that have been administered of that particular vaccine. As of the reports last week, there were some uh, seven to uh, seven and a half million uh, administrations of that vaccine. And as we said, uh, six or seven people uh, turned up having blood clots or or a similar serious uh, consideration. Latest update is that they are looking at cautiously restarting the uh, administration of that vaccine with some more guidance issued from the CDC. So, you know, don't let that deter you from getting your vaccine. Uh, There are still, you know, the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccines out there. They are still being administered and they are proving to be, you know, very effective as we have seen a slowdown in the rate at which new cases are cropping up uh, and a corresponding slowdown in the number of deaths from uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 
uh, uh, sickness here in the country. So along with, you know, our responsibilities for mask wearing and social distancing and, you know, washing our hands and, and general cleanliness, uh, overall, we are still seeing a reduction in the number of cases reported. However, there are indications that uh, at least one of the variants out there, uh, I believe it is the South African variant, uh, is proving to be a little bit more resistive to treatment. And uh, the doctors and scientists are cautiously watching to see if we are going to have a fourth surge in this country. Uh, there have been some surges reported in some areas, but uh, nationwide, we continue to see the declines in overall cases. So, you know, that in, in is very good news. We continue to make progress. There are going to be some hiccups along the way, and, you know, that is to be expected. Um, the bottom line at the end of the day is we need to keep up our end of the bargain and do what we can do to make sure that we're not uh, transmitting or spreading the disease. You know, as discussions go on about opening up more and more of the economy and venues and locations around the country, we need to make sure that we just always, you know, practice the safe tips that we've been given uh, in order to, you know, try and arrest as much as we can the, the spread of the disease. So, you know, very much words to the wise, you know, do what we need to do in order to keep ourselves, our loved ones, our community and our country safe. All right. So let's move on to some other uh, news and events over the last week that I wanted to touch on for this week's show. Uh, last week, I uh, mentioned that President Biden was uh, forming a commission to study potential changes that could be made to the Supreme Court. Uh, among these were uh, expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court from 9 to 13 in order to achieve a more balanced court. Uh, you can read that to mean in order to combat a Republican-led conservative majority on the court. And the other uh, big uh, announcement out of the commission was that I was going to look at the possibility of instituting term limits uh, for Supreme Court justices. So I wanted to break down a couple of points about both of those. Uh, as I said in last week's show, uh, I'm not necessarily a fan of expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, that is something that you know can go back and forth because it merely takes a majority vote of the Senate in order to make that change. So, you know, should the Democrats lose control of the Senate and or the White House in the 22 and 24 elections, it's highly likely that they would uh, reduce the number of justices back to the original nine uh, and restore the outright majority that the conservative side of the aisle or fence has on the Supreme Court. Uh, so, you know, that would just you know, I, I think, in my opinion, undermine the credibility of the court where, you know, it can change and flow back and forth. Uh, I, I think, you know, that we have a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, as I said last week, uh, hasn't really proven to be uh, that, you know, not to put, put it too lightly, but it hasn't proven to be that big of a deal 
as even the newly appointed judges uh, that were put in place by former President Trump uh, have uh, upheld uh, several key pieces of legislation that actually went against what the Republicans uh, in the House and Senate were looking to achieve uh, because they interpreted the law and applied the laws and precedents that we have in adjudicating you know several of these cases and that's the way it's supposed to be that is what justices do they don't make political decisions they make decisions based on guidance from uh, the constitution the laws of our country and and states and you know what has come before in terms of precedent set you know in in cases prior to whichever one they're looking at so again, in, in my opinion, while you know it may be a little bit uncomfortable and there's surely going to be some cases that are decided that the, uh, the centrist and populist uh, middle of our country are not going to be in agreement with, um, I think it is something that we just have to, to live with and work with and try to, try to do the best that we can. Now, of course, the cure to getting radical decisions from the courts is for you know, studied and carefully thought out and well-executed laws to be uh, brought forth from the House and Senate uh, that are, are clearly stated, um, that are, uh, I, I won't say indefensible, but what I will say is that are solid in their basis in our laws. And, you know, that is what will work to keep, uh, you know, guiding our, our judicial appointees and our, our judges to, you know, make decisions that follow the law. You know, as, as often said, the United States is not a country of persons. It is a country of law. And, you know, we follow the laws that are established for our country, for our states, uh, all the way down to the local level. So, you know, while that is a political hot button issue, in my opinion, it is one that we really um, shouldn't exercise. Now, the second one in terms of bringing uh, term limits to Supreme Court, uh, and I gather by extension, federal uh, court judges who are appointed to lifetime positions. Um, that one I am more in favor of, although I recognize, as, as we should recognize, that in order to make that a reality, it would actually require a, an amendment to the Constitution, which designates that uh, federal judge, judges uh, up to and including the Supreme Court are appointed uh, by the nominated by the president, appointed by the Senate and serve a life membership. Um, if we were going to change to make there a term limit on how long a Supreme Court justice uh, could serve, whether it's based on a certain number of years or reaching a certain age, um, that would require a an amendment to the constitution which would have to be uh brought forth from the house and senate passed by 
uh, two-thirds majority in both of those bodies, and then ratified by 38 of the 50 states uh, in order to make that amendment to the Constitution uh, law. You can be as optimistic as you want to be, but you have to understand that getting a change such as this uh, to be accepted by 38 states in this country, given the political makeup of those states, i.e. that, uh, you know, 43 states are, are controlled, you know, I, I think it's 43, are controlled uh, by Republicans or are red states. Um, so that is and would be an extremely rough uphill battle in order to make that kind of change, uh, particularly if the conservative uh, wing of the country is not in favor of it. So, you know, while uh, setting term limits uh, is something that that has an appeal to it, it is, you know, the the most difficult task to be undertaken simply because what's needed is that constitutional amendment. Uh, but the commission's going to look at uh, those two things and other things uh, with regard to the Supreme Court and, by extension, the federal bench. And uh, we'll see what happens of that. Uh, it, it's going to take probably, I think they have a 180-day mandate in order to uh, conclude their, their study and publish their findings. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens with that, um, you know. But it, it's, it just goes back to things that I have said before, where the, the real solutions lie not in making drastic and, and sweeping changes to our, our systems and to our, our governmental constructs. The real change is in, you know, making appropriate uh, changes and changing the attitudes of our elected officials. Uh, you know, right now, as, I, as I've said many times, uh, the, the House and the Senate uh, tend to vote their will or tend to vote the will of those who give them the most money rather than uh, following the guidance of the, the popular consensus of the people of the United States. Um, you know, you need look uh, only no further than debates and discussions and polls on uh, common sense gun law reform, for example, um, or, you know, defunding uh, or re refunding uh, the police departments. Um, you know, there, there are any number of issues that have received, you know, 60, 65, 70, you know, 80 percent uh, support among all of the American people, not people from one particular party or the other, but all of the people uh, in being, you know, in, in favor of a particular uh, item. I brought up, you know, common sense gun reform. Uh, that has a and has had for a long time a 70 plus percent uh, approval rating of the American people. Yet continually, Congress, uh, the House and the Senate tend to vote and side with the, the gun lobbies, uh, those that are, are 
not in favor of making any changes to gun laws under the the thinking that you know it it somehow infringes on the second amendment and you know no matter how many times you explain to them that the these these changes are not uh infringements on you know the the second amendment itself or the heller decision uh that you know reinforced and expanded it that you know, it doesn't change their minds. They see any change to anything gun-related as the first step in a, in an attempt to restrict the rights of, of citizens uh, to own guns. Now, you know, we could we could debate until the cows come home about you know how that applies to handguns and long rifles and shotguns and automatic weapons and. Uh, and all of the arguments that we've heard over the last, you know, 25, 30, 35 years uh, about gun control in this country. Um, but the, the end of the day, the real battle is not to change the hearts and minds of the American people to follow what, you know, the House and Senate want, but to change the hearts and minds of the House and the Senate to follow the will of the American people. And, you know, the, the way that is manifested is through uh, a, a deluge of public comment and communication, as, as we say on this show all the time. Uh, you should have your, your state reps, your state senators, your governor, your uh, federal uh, congressional representatives and your your senator on your speed dial. They should be part of your uh, contact list on your smartphone, so that you you can reach out to them and communicate to them uh, at will and make your voice and your opinion heard. That's the way that we make change happen in this country. Uh, all of the great advancements that have happened in terms of things that have been beneficial for the overwhelming majority of people, regardless of political party, regardless of ideology and, and all the rest, have been through large-scale groundswell of public pressure on elected officials to, to make the changes that we want to happen. Uh, it, it, is, it is how we've gotten you know, where we are in many, many things, and it is a way that we need to move forward with you know these types of changes as long as our elected officials believe that a no one is watching b no one cares and c no one is going to do anything about it they will continue with the status quo they will continue to follow the people that throw bundles of money in their you know in their window that continue to to you know sponsor their events to you know to fund their campaigns and do all of the things that end up you know hurting so many Americans uh, this is this is change that we have to make happen everybody and you know as we do on this show the call to action is number one make sure that you know who your elected officials are from your local mayor all the way up to you know your your uh, House of Representative member and senators in Washington, and have 
communication channels with them established so that you can keep them informed of what you want them to do. Believe me, it actually does carry weight. You know, it, it may not seem so uh, in the immediate term, but you know, continued communication, continued expression of what our wishes are, that's how we make political change in this country. Combine that with looking at the voting records of your elected officials. And again, this goes from the bottom locally all the way up to the top in Washington. And if they're not matching up with what your wishes are or, or the wishes of you know, those in your, your family, your community, your state you know, uh, uh, who agree with you are, then exercise your vote to make that change. And let them know that, you know, they they are not following your wishes. And unless they change, we're going to show them the door. That they are not going to be just guaranteed an automatic return to their elected office without proving and performing to our expectations uh, year over year, month over month, day over day. Uh, that's the way that happens. That's the way change happens in a democracy when the people aren't satisfied the people vote and make changes so you know that's what we have to do uh it is it is clear that you know it it's it's uh, again things that the american people want you know there there a poll came out or polls have come out over the past week um showing you know in, in terms of the supreme court in light of Biden's uh, commission proposal, that uh, 38% would only 38% of the American people would support expanding the size of the court. Um, another 42% said they would oppose doing so, uh, and the rest were undecided. Now, on the uh, term limits, uh, the numbers were uh, significantly higher. You know, with with more people. Um, you know, expressing a, a need or a desire to see term limits, even though uh, that would take a much more difficult path. Um, you know, the other thing that came out of uh, this, the Reuters Ipsos poll that this article I'm looking at was based on is that uh, the poll found only 49% of Americans have a great deal or a fair amount of confidence in decisions made by Supreme Court justices. Uh, in comparison, 43% of respondents expressed a similar amount of trust in decisions made by the White House, and 32% said the same uh, of decisions made by Congress. Now, if you notice, and this article came out uh, a week ago, if you notice, this poll is showing that there isn't a majority of American support for or, or confidence in these institutions. And there's a reason for that. It's because of the decisions that come out, the actions that we see taken, the lack of, uh, of concern for the will of the people, uh, and that impacts how much confidence we, the people, have in the institutions that we send our elected officials to uh, to do our work. You know, now, granted, the Supreme Court is, 
you know, appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So they are not technically elected. However, you know, depending on which party is in control of the White House and the Senate at the time, you know, that kind of guides the pool from which these justices come. As, as we have seen over the last four years under the previous administration of President Trump. So, you know, there, there are things that we can do. There are actions that we can take, most notably that we need to be communicating with our elected officials on a regular basis. Uh, we, need, we need to get to where they almost know us by our first names. Um, and we need to let them know when we approve of something they do and definitely when we disapprove. And we need to make sure they understand that the more we disapprove, the more likely it is that we are going to uh, vote them out of office at the next election. So just some food for thought and call to action. Uh, as always, we, we want to make sure that not only do we give you you know, some, some facts and basis behind how the political system works. But we also want to let you know what you, what we the people, what all of us can do about it. So uh, let's, let's take a break here. Uh, we'll uh, pick up with some additional topics right after the break. You're listening to Fired Up. This is Steve. We're here on WJMSRadio.com. We appreciate you uh, being with us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Things are getting intense, using up my sixth sense. Thought you had us figured, I can't use me at your expense. They be on that pretense, we be on some defense. If you in the past tense, you could keep your two cents. I don't wanna be another target on a headless. All my people running around the city like some misfits. So I'm steady praying for my brothers like a wish list. And I trust a soul, they gon' turn on you the quickest. Damn, there's so much going on in this world we call our home. They been looting and protesting, trying to get it for our home. Ain't nobody got us like we got us. Streets is in a frenzy, you see the riots. Stand up for a cause, or you die for one of yours. Ain't no universal laws, they just want to sabotage. Rolling with my entourage, and they tell us be safe. But they got our hands behind us while we down up on our face. It don't make no sense, no. It felt like a death, no. How we supposed to raise our sons, how we supposed to get through. Feeling really stressful, years of being dreadful. How could we be careful when we ain't really careful? Therefore, all the youths need a good mentor. Yes, Lord, all the years, this we in. There's no cure. All the cops screaming, f- 10 for what for? Government always trying to send, so we at war. Yeah, we black, but we really called Moors, born poor. All we care about is Jordan Concords, looking stars. Why you taking things that's not yours? All boy, that ain't no way yet on the George Floyd. Stay on point. Half America is really unemployed. We annoyed. Killing people with a state of paranoia. Can't avoid it. All these businesses burned down and destroyed. No insurance. Think my people kind of Missing what's important, yeah. Stand up for your rights, yeah. We putting up a fight. They don't want us out at night, so they gave us curfew. It's like jumping out the plane with no f- parachute. Don't shoot, hands up, but they still gonna do it. Here we know and probably like, man, what y'all. 
doing need to come together all of us and start a revolution yeah discover more solutions overthrow the constitution stop the loot and stop the shooting we've been living in confusion i'm getting intense losing up my success thought you had us figured i can't use me at your expense they be on that pretense we be on some defense if you in the past tense you could keep your two cents i don't want to be another target on a head list all my people running around the city like some misfits I'm steady praying for my brothers like a wish list And I trust a soul, they gon' turn on you the quickest And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve, your host, and we're going to jump back and take a look at another story that I mentioned uh, last week and uh, believe the week before. Uh, and you know, we've been talking about the viability of creating a third political party in this country. And uh, in, in doing research and looking at the mechanics of how that might happen, uh, it's also came across to me that uh, in, in the interim, as we work to build a, a viable third party, there is already you know, some mechanisms that are in place that we could you know, take advantage of and use to get you know, more of the people's work and what we're concerned about uh, brought to the floor of the House and the Senate and, you know, make it into laws that we'd like to see. And I'm going to get into, you know, what that might look like in a minute, but I just wanted to preface it with some news that came out um, on uh, last week, uh, articles on April 17th. Uh, the first one uh, came from CBS News. And uh, this, the title is, the new, quote, America First Caucus, close quote, would champion, quote, Anglo-Saxon political traditions, close quote. And uh, I will, let me, let me read the article to you. It, it's a short article. Uh, this was in CBS News. Uh, you can go to their website and you can find it there to search for America First Caucus. Um, the article reads, uh, a controversial new caucus that is expected to be introduced in the House would champion Anglo-Saxon political traditions and work toward infrastructure that reflects the architectural, engineering, and aesthetic value that befits the progeny of European architecture. And this is according to a document that appears uh, to describe the caucus. Uh, the, the document was first reported on Friday by Punchbowl News, which said Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Goser are behind the America First caucus. On Saturday, in an apparent reference to Punchbowl News' reporting, Greene claimed on Twitter that the document was a staff-level draft proposal from an outside group that I hadn't read. Uh, in a statement to CBS News, Green's communications director, Nick Dyer, said the caucus's platform will be announced to the public very soon. 
Green is a controversial figure who was stripped of her committee assignments earlier this year in response to her previous promotion of conspiracy theories, racist, racist social media posts, and apparent endorsement against, of violence against Democrats. GOP Representative Louis Gohmert, a staunch ally of former President Trump, who was reportedly invited to join the caucus, told CBS News on Friday that he is looking at the language but had not yet made a decision on whether to join and was unaware of other potential members. He said he did not know when the caucus would be launched. So, you know, the, the, the premise here is that this group, this caucus, uh, would be advancing an agenda that would favor, as they call it, Anglo-Saxon political traditions. Um, I personally, I think that's a buzzword for, you know, an alternative to, you know, what what we're calling now uh, white supremacist views. But, you know, read it and and take your own measurement of what you think it means. Um, it the the proposal on this caucus uh, when it was announced uh, created you know an immediate firestorm of reaction on both sides uh, as to one the accuracy of you know such a caucus being formed and you know two who was behind it you know who was supporting it uh, and apparently. It created such a backlash of reaction, you know, on on a on both sides of the political spectrum that uh, later on in in that day and, and announced the day after uh, in, a, in an article uh, that was uh, reported by CNN's Jim Acosta. He reports that Marjorie Taylor Greene is scrapping America first group. There won't be a, quote, Klan caucus, close quote. Uh, and the article, the second article reads, and again, this is a brief article. CNN host Jim Acosta reported that GOP Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Republican from Georgia, is scrapping her controversial America First caucus after backlash, he said. We should all be grateful there won't be a, quote, Klan caucus, close quote. Uh, a CNN article uh, was the first to break the story um, and quotes Nick Dyer, again, Green's spokesperson, uh, who told CNN in an email on Saturday afternoon, the Georgia Republican is not, quote, launching anything, close quote. Uh, quote, the, con the congresswoman wants to make sure that she wants to make clear, rather, that she is not launching anything. This was an early planning proposal and nothing was agreed to or approved, end quote. He said in an email to CNN referring to a flyer promoting the caucus obtained by Punchbowl News that used inflammatory rhetoric. He added that she didn't approve that language and has no plans to launch anything. Uh, the proposed caucus received significant backlash from, Gene, from Green's GOP colleagues over its nativist and racist language of praising Anglo-Saxon political traditions. Uh, early on Saturday, Green had defended the caucus, but it seems the tone has changed. So, you know, in, in, 
a, a just remarkable you know piece of news and and information that came out uh, you know this this proposal for this European centric Anglo-Saxon political tradition caucus um, you know was raised and you know pretty immediately uh, took a lot of flack and a lot of incoming fire and seems to have been pulled back. Although, you know, in my opinion, you know, I will keep a cautious watch to see if, in fact, it doesn't resurface in another form or style, uh, but one that does, you know, essentially the same thing. Um, and, and this goes to what I, I kind of wanted to, to get into as we talk about, you know, uh, alternatives to a, a two-party system in our, our democratic government. Um, and, you know, it, it should be noted that if you're really going to be honest about it, there is no real need for a, an Anglo-Saxon-oriented uh, caucus in the House or Senate uh, because in, in truth and in reality, um, right now, there already is such a caucus. It is called the, you know, the white majority of the House and Senate. Let me give you some, some facts. 77% of the voting members in the House and Senate are white, and that's of uh, January of this year. And, you know, contrast that and compare that with the fact that only 60% of the population here in the United States uh, is white. And again, in, in 2021. Now, that 77% uh, of voting members, uh, that is a drop from where it was uh, 40 years ago in 1981, when 94% of the House and Senate members were white. And 80% of the population in the country was or, or was white at that time. So, you know, it, we, we've heard the, the rumblings of this um, for for months and years um, that, you know, there is a, a certain segment of the population in this country that has a great deal of uh, concern and perhaps fear of the fact that our country is becoming a, a more racially diverse country. And, you know, the, the numbers proved it. 20% drop uh, in the percentage of white uh, uh, citizens here in the U.S. over 40 years. And, you know, there have been numerous studies and reports out that says that uh, those people who are white in this country um, are going to be a statistical minority uh, as soon as, you know, within the next uh, 25 to 35 years, that uh, minorities that are in this country, you know, black, um, Hispanic, Asian, and, and so forth, um, are going to out, outnumber them numerically in this country. And in some states, that's already happened, most notably California where the largest segment of the population uh, are of Mexican descent or Hispanic descent. So, you know, this has, this has created an atmosphere of fear uh, among many in the white community 
that they are, quote, losing their grip, close quote, on, you know, the United States of America. Now, it, it needs to be carefully balanced, and you need to understand that even when, you know, white people in this country are a statistical or a numerical uh, minority in this country, they will still control an overwhelming percentage of the economic uh, engine that drives this country. Uh, you know, we've talked about on this show before about the wealth gap and the income inequalities in this country. Uh, those two things are part of the drivers of much of the social unrest that we have seen uh, transpire over the last uh, 10 years uh, recently and over the last uh, 30 years more broadly. So, you know, it, it, is, it is clear that, you know, they really don't have a whole lot to worry about. Um, but on the, on the flip side of that, and this ties into what I've been talking about in terms of uh, exercising a, a new political strategy outside of just Democrats and Republicans, uh, one of the, the ways that we can achieve some of that goal is by exercising uh, our representation in the House and Senate. Right now, uh, according to a Pew Research poll, uh, 127 members of the House and Senate uh, are minority, that is, are people of color. Um, for example, uh, they charted that as of uh, January in 2021, there were uh, 59 uh, black members of the House and Senate. There were uh, 40 Hispanic, 17 Asian American, and six Native American members of the, the House and Senate. And, and those count um, everyone except non-voting delegations and commissioners uh, in those two bodies. So, you know, as, as we look at ways to exercise our uh, power, one of the ways is if we can, you know, coalesce these groups into, you know, a, a unified caucus and have them, you know, establish an, a, a voting agenda that seeks to benefit, you know, their constituent groups as well as all Americans, um, you know, we can, in fact, break a lot of the log jams that we see in our elected officials in Washington. One of the things, you know, for, for you younger listeners out there, um, the Congressional Black Caucus used to be and, and, and was uh, back in the day, and I'm not taking anything away from them in their current form right now, but, you know, in the, in the, the 70s and 80s, the Congressional Black Caucus was a force to be reckoned with in the House and the Senate. That is, they controlled a block of votes that made it necessary for either majority party, Democrat or Republican, in order to get something done, they had to, you know, in many cases, go through the CBC in, in order to, you know, garner their votes and, and seek the majority they needed to get things done. Now, that has continued 
through the years, but it, it has never seen the power that it saw, you know, back in the, the 70s and 80s uh, in, in Washington. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the voting changes, the, the social changes that occurred over that time frame were the result of, you know, the, the minority caucuses in the House and Senate flexing their voting muscle and letting, you know, the, the others know that, you know, if they don't go along with it, the, the bill's not going to pass. And, you know, in, in Washington, it is all about what you can get passed. And it is all about who controls the majority. So, you know, if we had, you know, even half of that, if we had 60 to 70 members of the House and Senate who were voting in, in a unified block for measures that were important to the constituencies of color, the poor, the disenfranchised in this country, um, a lot of change could be brought forward. Uh, and this is something that, you know, could be accomplished in the interim as we work you know, as the people work at the state level and, you know, the local level and, and all of the levels moving up the chain toward federal levels of, of building out a viable third political party in this country, perhaps one with a more progressive view, uh, but definitely one that could stand between the Democrats and the Republicans with a controlling block of votes uh, in order to ensure that whatever legislation is going to get passed has to reflect, uh, you know, the constituencies of the, the, the middle of this country. You know, it, it, it's not about, you know, the left. It's not just about the right. It's about the middle. It's about that group of people uh, with, you know, progressive values and more moderate thinking, um, you know, the, the, the center right, center left, all of those groups uh, would be groups that, you know, this, this uh, voting block could potentially reach out to and champion. And, you know, some very, very crucial legislation that gets hung up in Democrat-Republican bickering uh, could actually make its way through and, you know, make its way to the president's desk for signature. Um, you know, I, as I said, a lot of you uh, out there listening uh, probably uh, are, are too young to remember those days, but I can recall when, you know, um, you know, presidents from Lyndon Johnson through Richard Nixon, you know, all the way up the line in order for them to get their agendas through, they had to meet and, and hear what was being said by you know these caucus groups whether it was the congressional black caucus or a congressional hispanic caucus you know any of these these uh subgroups within the elected bodies that controlled you know votes in the senate votes in the house uh they were important uh players in the game they provided key input uh, they provided perspective and direction uh, in order for laws that benefited the, 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 the poor, the working class, you know, all of the groups that are suffering now, 
you know, under the the inequalities that we see, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, income inequality, uh, infrastructure inequality, jobs inequality, you know, all of these things were addressed and championed by these these constituent groups within the House and Senate and made a priority uh, simply by the fact that if you know, they weren't considered a priority if they weren't addressed in some way uh, that, you know, bills wouldn't get through. And that seemed to to drive a lot of change in Washington, D.C. and bring a lot of, um, you know, a lot of energy to the issues that matter to the rank and file American people. And you know, that is something that I believe that we need to uh, get back to, that we need to flex not only our political muscle uh, out here in, in the voting booth and in the, the election process, but we need to encourage you know, our members of these constituent groups within the, the House and Senate and within the local and state levels as well. Um, and, you know, convince them that this is uh, a, a flag that they need to pick up and march with and that, you know, they need to champion our voices uh, within the halls of, of legislatures and, you know, get these, uh, these, these priorities advanced. You know, as we look back over the, the wrangling that's going on over, you know, and just work backwards, you know, President Biden's um, uh, infrastructure bill uh, going back and forth between the Republicans and Democrats on what they want and what the others want. Uh, look at the the uh, covid relief bill, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, that, too, went through this bipartisan battle of trying to include things that the right wanted and include things that the left wanted. Meanwhile, the bill's delayed and people are hurting. Uh, and you can just go back and back and back and look at the major and minor pieces of legislation that have tried to make it through the, the Senate and the House uh, to see that just having Democrat or Republican, uh, liberal or conservative being the only guideposts uh, really does nothing but slow down the wheels of progress. Um, I would bet I would bet money that if these groups, if these caucuses had flexed their voting muscle at the appropriate times, uh, some, you know, if not most of those 200 bills that ended up sitting on the uh, Republican leader of the Senate's desk uh, throughout the the four years of the prior administration and even the the eight years of the Obama administration before that um, would have been passed because these groups could make it known that, look, if you don't pass, you know, this, you know, ABC law, um, you're not going to get your, you know, defense budget through the way you want it, or you're not going to get your appropriations bill done, or, you know, we're going to vote to take out some of your pet projects that are built into these omnibus bills. So, I mean, there's a political game, and you know how we talk about political games on this show. 
there's a political game that can be played to the benefit of the American people if we can work and gather a unified uh, caucus from these uh, these you know constituent groups within the House and Senate. And again, 127 out of you know 535 overall um, representatives and senators uh, may not seem like a lot, but if you look at the fact that right now um, bills are being passed on party line majorities, which is eight votes in the House and one vote or in, in the Senate with a tiebreaker um, cast by the Democratic president of the Senate. So if, if we're looking at, again, even half of those, if we're looking at 14 votes in the Senate and you know 53 votes in the House, that's a huge difference. That is a huge difference. You know, if, if those 53 votes are all opposed to a particular bill, that bill's not getting passed because there won't be a majority. And that is the power that's there that we need to get our elected officials uh, to begin to exercise. So, you know, as we as we wind down to the close of the show, our second call of action, and this is a new one, we need to reach out to the members of these caucuses, to the 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 black caucuses, the Hispanic caucuses, the the uh, Asian and uh, Asian Island Pacific caucus and the Native American caucus. And we need to convince them that it is it is in their interest and our interest for them to unify and come together with a, a unified agenda of what they want to see the House and the Senate in Washington pass and address. You know, if we can make that happen, uh, we will see some significant change in what transpires in our country as we work toward building out a viable third political party to, to take on in a more formal fashion uh, how we do this work. So... That's our call to action. You know, let's reach out, get in touch with these groups, find out what their agendas are, find out what their concerns are, and let's let's work with them and 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 encourage them to work together as a more unified body for the betterment of all American people. So with that being said, you know, we'll we'll wrap up this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts or opinions on on anything I've talked about today, please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I really, really would love to hear some feedback on, you know, getting this coalition of uh, minority caucuses in the House and Senate together. Um, I really, really would love to hear what you think pro or con if you're if you think it's a crazy idea tell me so reach out fired up radio at yahoo.com and you know of course as always let's make sure we're staying safe we're mask wearing our mask when we need to we're socially distancing uh wherever we need to uh and and you know keep our hands clean and 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 don't spread the germs everybody be safe I look forward to us getting together again next Monday. Until then, take care, everyone, and I will talk to you again in seven days.
this message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late